Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Bengalis in New York show. My name is Arik and uh, we were repping it for, you know, the Bronx, Manhattan, Brooklyn, Queens, Staten Island, and all over the world. So welcome and enjoy. Welcome, New York. Is that how you pronounce it, New York? Uh, I think the anglicized version is near Jor, but uh, the Bangla way is near Jor. Yeah, that's Nijor. right. <laughs> so what do you do when a Shada person says near Jor? What do you do? Do you, do you correct them or do you just continue? Well, you know, what's interesting is like I grew up in Texas for most of my life, I suppose like most of my youth. And so they have a lot more colorful way of saying near Jor. Um, so that's what I end up. So, so oftentimes I'll have to s- settle for the in-between or the median, which is near shore. That's right. Wow. Did you ever think about like uh, a short, uh, hyphenated, like near? You know, people actually used to call me knee. It wasn't my choice. Um, oh, wow. And it always kind of boggled my mind because like, <laughs> it's just, you know, seven letters or eight letters. And so, you know, but it is what it is. So, but then I, uh, when I left Texas I, I, and went to the East Coast, I guess people there are, you know, they, they find these names a little bit easier to pronounce maybe. So then, you know, I, that's where I became near Jor. So where, uh, what made you come to the East Coast? Uh, I went to school. I went to university in Washington, D.C. Um, oh, okay. And I studied international relations. Yep. Oh, wow. So now you uh, are a part of this, and this is why we're talking. It's really impressive. You, you run this incredible angels network in Bangladesh. Can you tell people first, you know, and this may sound really simple to you, but what is an angel? And, and then also, and how is it different from an investor? And, and what made you, uh, you know, want to start this network of angels in Bangladesh? Yeah, for sure. No, thank you for that. Um, so, I mean, an angel is an investor. I, I think it's a specific type of investor though, right? So typically in the life cycle of an entrepreneur and particularly a startup, uh, because there is sort of a lag between when a company can get to a certain scale and therefore profitable and then the time you have to do to find product market fit you know try different types of products in the market see what will get taken up build a team build an organization etc you definitely need flexible forms of capital right and and that's not going to be done through debt it's going to be done through equity and and then therefore investors who believe both in the merit of the idea that you're pursuing but also in you right um as as a human being as an entrepreneur and so that's what an angel is right you know they're literally putting money down based not, not on anything tangible. Oftentimes, they're putting it down based on a, com- a story that you're giving, a PowerPoint that you have, and other types of kind of collateral that you have that's not actually kind of physical. Um, and so, yeah, they're taking the, you know, so, you know, first you start with your own capital, friends and family capital, and then angels come in um, after that. Uh, they'll come in for equity and they'll bring in not only their you know, they'll not only their money, but they'll also bring in their expertise, right? So angel investors are typically people who are, you know, operating at high levels, whether they're entrepreneurs themselves who built businesses, uh, which is great, or even, you know, top level executives who've been successful for a very long time. And so they're bringing key perspectives, you know, we like to call smart capital. So that's, that's what angel investing is. And, you know, the idea is they'll come in, they'll stay with you for three to five years. And as your company gets bigger, as you get bigger and bigger investors, at some point, they'll take, take their shares, they'll take their gains, and then they'll move on to other companies. But in the meantime, you know, you stay with your company uh, until you realize an exit. So that's, that's what angel investing is. Um, for us, and for me in particular, we decided to start Bangladesh Angels. I've been back in Bangladesh full time since 2014. Um, I've worked in different elements. I was, you know, I worked in social entrepreneurship. 
I worked um, in running an accelerator for social entrepreneurs, grassroots entrepreneurs around the country. And I think one of the, the realizations I had is that there's a significant amount of talent in the country. Um, and if we're going to change the economy, um, we have and accelerate the, the transformation towards being an industrialized, very traditional economy towards a digital one, then we have to find the entrepreneurs who are doing it. We have to find the ones that are capable of scaling their ideas. And then we have to pair them up with angel investors who can actually give them the skills, the perspectives, and obviously the capital to be able to realize it. Um, and what I realized also is that um, there's a, a platform or a model called Angel Networks, whereby entrepreneurs get access to a bunch of different investors at the same time. They're able to kind of create groups of investors who will come in on similar terms. And so you get the benefit of multiple angels rather than just talking to you know each person one by one by one. So that's worked around the world, including in Silicon Valley, including in you know Europe, including in Southeast Asia, but Bangladesh lacked one. There wasn't one before uh, we came along uh, as a formal network. And so we, we decided to launch it, myself and some of my mentors from the ecosystem back in 2018. So that's, that's kind of how we ended up creating Bangladesh Angels. Wow, that's exciting. And how old are you? I'm uh, 31. Wow, that's exciting. And what was, what was the response from the people in Bangladesh about, about this sort of um, this sort of initiative, uh, and I asked because I, I'm just curious if if the community was supportive, if they were willing uh, to receive investment from the outside. Yeah, well, I mean, entrepreneurs were very happy, you know, because uh, they this is the acute problem that they face is that they're constantly trying to. I mean, it's not that angel investing wasn't happening; it was happening. It was just it was very unorganized, right? So if you have a startup, you pull together all your savings, you. You hit up friends and family. Suddenly, you need to go to angel investors, and you have no idea who they are or where they are or how to get to them, unless you come from a certain background, right? So that was a huge challenge. Like every time you needed to raise capital, you needed to like knock on doors and have meetings one on one and and try to convince people one at a time. So that was a huge problem. And then for would be angel investors too, right? They they like the idea of you know being able to come in as part of a group. So you're de-risking the investment. They like the idea of a full organized body that's looking at deals and doing the due diligence. So because it's very time consuming, right? To, you know, you 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 potentially interested in investing in startups. There's more and more people in Bangladesh who have the capital, you know, who could put in 10, 20, 30. 40, 50K at a time into a startup and would like to because they've seen maybe similar models in other countries. They've seen even in Bangladesh, angel investors who've invested in companies and have you know come away with a handsome profit. But for them, you know, for these you know, would-be angels, the, the issue is, yeah, it's a, it's a lack of time. You're managing your own business. You're managing your own organization. So you, know, you don't have the time to look at each and every startup founder, figure out what's going on underneath the hood, structure the deal, and then make sure all the documents are done and then manage the help manage the company post investment. So, you know, we're kind of coming in between both sides, right? So I think as an idea, it's been taken well. Obviously, we still face sometimes challenges for people saying, well, you know, startups aren't going to work. You know, this is kind of, uh, this is too much of a, a, a pipe dream, et cetera. But to me, like that's more, that's, that's more of an exception rather than the rule. I think, um, you know, within the community, I think they've really embraced us um, as an organization uh, you know, we now have members and, and people pay to be part of our membership, right? As, as investors, we have people all the way from Australia to the US, Canada, and pretty much everywhere in between. Um, and so, so I think so far, it's been a very positive ride. And, uh, you know, we just want to continue doing that. Are most of the companies that you're funding in Bangladesh? Yes. Well, so, I mean, we used to have this kind of mandate or I wouldn't say mandate, but definitely a focus to say, look, Bangladeshi companies 
registered in Bangladesh, run, uh, run by Bangladeshis, working for mm-hmm. the Bangladesh market. I think that was kind of the initial vision. I think COVID has really kind of changed my perspective on this a little bit and, and, and the board as well, because now that we're spending more time talking to non-resident Bangladeshis, for example, right? We're seeing that even just today, I was talking to a couple of guys you know, Bengali Indian brothers who are who have a mm. company that's uh, reinventing the idea of kind of like chai latte. It's in, being done in New York, and they're also you know doing cloud kitchens and things like that on this concept. But yeah, I mean, there's I, I think we can be flexible, right? So I think yeah. nowadays on on all three merits. So maybe it's Bengali instead of Bangladeshi, right? Yeah. Maybe it's maybe it's serving the Bengali community globally, or whether it's in South Asia as opposed to just Bangladesh, yeah. right? And also on the registration side, uh, you know, maybe it's being based in Singapore or New York as opposed to, or UK as opposed to just in Bangladesh. Yeah, we received criticism at Boney, um, rightfully so, that we were very Bangladeshi focused and the site is called, and the webpage is called uh, Bengalis of New York. So, and it's not even New York. Like we talk, I talk to people all over the world and I, I definitely don't only talk to Bangladeshis. I talk to Bengalis. I've had a number of folks uh, from Kolkata and West Bengal. Um, so that's really important. So I'm glad, you, I'm glad you said that because yeah, I mean, like you said earlier, it's all about you're investing with on the in the person, um, and if the person and you know is super talented, has a great idea, and if they're Bengali or if they're not Bengali, I mean, why not? Why wouldn't you invest? Why would you say no to potential, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> Absolutely. What's uh, you know what would you say to you know someone like someone here, right, that wants to invest in Bangladesh, and you know we because we, we're drawn to Bangladesh, right? We're you know it's our motherland. Our parents are from there. Some of us were born there. I was born in Bangladesh. The, there's obvious, there's a you know elephant in the room. The obvious concern many people would have is the bribery and corruption risk. Um, there's there's not that there, there isn't bribery in the U.S. and corruption in the U.S. There is this fraud in the U.S. Madoff is a prime prime example. Um, the perception is that it's more rampant in Bangladesh. So what sort of like what, what's your answer you know to uh, when you when you get that, that sort of comment? I, I think it kind of has to do with sort of two two perspectives right so one is i think that's couched in the idea of you know how do we trust the founder right how do you trust the entrepreneur right how do we know that the numbers and information they're giving is correct right and i think that has a lot to do with i think the quality of due diligence that we do so it's it's never that um you know a company just comes to us and we make a deal in like you know two to three weeks right it's never a shotgun marriage and i think sometimes entrepreneurs quite frankly get frustrated by that, uh, you know, our process. But every investment, we, we've done six investments so far, I mean, close to a seventh, another eighth, maybe coming up soon. Uh, you know, I mean, all of those relationships have been there for, I, I mean, between when we meet an entrepreneur, um, the initial assessment, and then giving them, you know, then we have members of the network assess them, we track them, then we bring them to the full network to present uh, whenever we see that they've, they've got good traction. Then, you know, there's a whole syndicate that forms and there's one-to-one meetings and then group meetings and a bunch of them, you know, that go back and forth. And then we discussions over term sheets. We appoint, you know, legal counsels to the deal. We appoint chartered accountancies to the deal. So all of those things, I mean, between kind of inception to investment and disbursement, I think it's typically a six to nine month cycle, right? So that's, that's one way of, I think, assessing, I guess, the merits of both the business and the founder. Um, it's also a small community, to be very frank. Um, and you know, just like in any any community in the world, you know, I think we sort of benefited from the fact that not only are we the kind of the first and largest and and most active kind of network, uh, we've also got this incredible board of people who are extremely influential 
investors in the com- country, right? And so, so it's very rare that um, an entrepreneur or a company has done something um, or something that you know necessarily that merits a red flag, and, and we don't uncover it in that process, right? So I think that's and that's also once again that's the benefit of a network-based investment model. That's, I guess that's one answer to that. The the second answer as far as okay, well, how do I get my money in? Getting my money out. Um, those kinds of things. I mean, it's it's definitely a challenge. I, I think you're not the only ones, right? When I talk to a lot of, I mean, there's a whole. I, this is something I just learned through Bangladesh Angel is that there's a whole kind of movement around angel investing, right? There's literally people who spend a significant portion of their time and their capital investing in companies around the world through platforms like AngelList and what have you, right? And they're increasingly interested in Bangladesh. You know, they, they've heard the stories, they've, they've seen the demographics, they've seen the growth projections, et cetera. They see the proximity to other large markets like India and Indonesia and, so, you know, et cetera. So, so they, they talk to me and, and they also kind of frank, quite frankly tell me, look, you know, I'm, I'm not ready to invest directly in a Bangladeshi company yet. I think one way to kind of clean up some of that, those issues is kind of instituting great, good governance, right? And I think there's, two, there's a few layers to that. So one is, increasingly this is happening in Bangladesh, is that a company may start out as a Bangladeshi registered company, but then increase, you know, then they, as they go get bigger, look for bigger rounds of capital, more flexible forms of capital, they would then re-register or re-domicile in places like Singapore, for example, right? Or sometimes they would do that upfront if they have the means to and if the founders have that kind of ability and, and connection. So that's that's one piece of it. The second piece is obviously, you know, this is something we're also learning more and more about is the importance of governance, right? Even at the early stage of a company, making sure that it's not, you know, the it's not not every decision is made by the founder. They still have to make 99%, 90, 95% of decisions, but at least the five percent that's very strategic, those are things that are discussed at the board level, make sure that we have some representation at, at the board level. Uh, and making sure that those things are a little bit more organized than, let's say, you know, what was being done before when it was, say, a group of friends kind of trying to do things mm-hmm. on the fly, right? So I, I think, I mean, there, there's many layers to that question, I suppose. I, I think the the main answer I was to say to that is process, right? You can make a bad investment. I mean, that's you can never avoid it. I mean, I always tell people if you make if you cut a check, assume 50, there's a fifty percent chance it's not going to come back. I mean, startups are the most riskiest asset class to invest in. But having said that, you could follow a good process and and make sure that. At least that is there, right? And 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 sleep well at night, knowing that you you've gone through that, and and that's something we we try very hard and very conscientiously to kind of go through. Do you have an example of a company that's like you said started in Bangladesh and then registered uh, in Singapore or elsewhere? Yeah, so we recently invested in one company. So what they're doing is um, they're trying to digitize the garment space, right? So what that means is kind of op- operating as an interface between this new kind of slate of direct-to-consumer brands in places like the UK or Bangladesh or, or sorry, UK, Canada, U- Europe, where, you know, just on Shopify, maybe they exist on Amazon or they exist to their own channels. Uh, typically, you know, for until now or un- until this platform came about, it was very hard for them to source directly from Bangladesh because a lot of the suppliers in Bangladesh are working in a pretty analog way. They're not that... Um, proactive about kind of being online. Everything's done over WhatsApp or email. Barely, you know, email is also hard uh, to communicate. So it's essentially kind of providing these buyers with an interface. They could kind of, it's a, it's a workflow management tool to manage every step of the, the procurement process, right? And on the back end, you know, they'll do the work of managing these suppliers in Bangladesh and also I think in places like Vietnam and, and to an extent, I think they're also looking at India. But they started out as a Bangladeshi company, right? They, they started out fully based in Bangladesh 
But then what happened was they they received investment from a Singapore-based accelerator that we were closely with. So then they re-registered uh, to Singapore. You know, some our investors kind of put in money in Singapore because it was NRBs that that was they were able to do that. But then even recently, they also got into an accelerator in Austin, Texas, and so they've opened up a U.S. office and a U.S. registration as well to be able to deal with U.S. clients. So that's that's wow. I mean that's the ideal scenario. It's like I mean. You know, it's it's a company that's definitely a startup, but it's serving a global market where Bangladesh has a niche. Um, it's a B two B company, so it could you know theoretically on the backs of you know contracts that get bigger and bigger, they could grow quite rapidly. Um, but obviously, you know, they then have to kind of have that international presence, right? Uh, and obviously, international yeah. registrations as well. Wow. Um, tell me about Bangladesh Angels Network. What's your business model? Do you do you take a cut of the company, or how does yeah. that work? Good question. So. Yeah, just like any kind of um, startup, we ourselves are trying to find our business model. I think we've learned, we've, we've taken this from other networks in the region. So we have an annual membership fee for our members. So they pay a charge, you know, they get access to all our, you know, events where we showcase companies or every weekend, just like you do, like, you know, just like you do podcasts, like we do sessions with, you know, experienced founders and investors from around the world as a means to kind of just simulate more knowledge and conversations in the community because a lot of our members are kind of quite new to the whole idea of angel investing and tech investing and, and technology entrepreneurship sometimes in, in general. So that's that's one piece of it. You know, they also like, obviously, if you decide to invest in a company, then you do it through us. You know, we're essentially a back, a back office uh, when it comes to the whole investment process, right? So that's that's the other advantage if you do decide to invest. But the only money you ever pay is just the one kind of subscription charge that you pay directly to us. We don't man- we don't handle your money. We're not an asset manager, right? You invest directly exactly. in the company uh, through our facilitation, though. And then on the other side, for companies, for startups, right? So if you do come through us and if we do showcase you and put you in front of our investors and if you're able to raise money through that process, then we take a, a commission on funds raised. But then we don't also charge anything upfront to entrepreneurs. That's the only money that you also ever pay directly to us. Is there uh, so usually for investors? Is there a minimum to invest, or does that depend on the type of company, industry, etc.? No, so we haven't said it. Um, we may in the future, but I think knowing that we're kind of early, you know, and, and quite new to the game, and many everyone's kind of just exploring. We haven't really set any kind of minimum. I think we we let the entrepreneurs decide that, right? So if they're okay taking a five thousand dollar check, then they're okay taking a five thousand dollar check, right? Uh, you know, if they're okay, I mean, I, I think we really rely on the founders to be able to kind of drive that process. Say, look, you know, well, I want this person in my cap table. I don't want this person in my cap table. Okay, that's uh, at the at the end of the day, it's your company, so we have to respect that. Um, and then. The other thing I, you know, I'd like to kind of mention, which is kind of novel for us, is that, um, you know, we were kind of inspired by the social business models coming out of Bangladesh, and so we structured ourselves as a nonprofit company. So what that means is, uh, you know, I have a board who volunteer their time, uh, completely 100% volunteer. Uh, you know, we do have operating expenses, but it comes through a, a, a financial sponsor, uh, specifically an organization called the Dutch Global Good Fund. And so whatever money we generate, as either in subscription fees or in commissions uh, on the deals we do, it stays within the company. And the idea is, at some point, the company can then be self-sustaining and, and serve, you know, continue to serve the ecosystem that way. So that's kind of the vision. And, and, and the idea was always, you know, this company doesn't belong to any particular person or a group of people. It belongs to the entire ecosystem of Bangladesh. Um, but let's see. I mean, that's, that's kind of the vision, but we're still early in those days. Hey, let's, you know, I, I'm curious. So my day job is legal and compliance. Um, and, you know, I talked to Fahaz Fahaz about this also is, again, going back to the 
concern about corruption. And I, and I just bring it up because I know this is something that our, the listeners, you know, will, will think about. Because I'll be honest with you, a lot of my friends right now, are, we're at the age, um, not me, but a lot of my friends are at that age where now they're starting to having to deal with um, their parents' investments in Bangladesh, be it land or, you know, whatever, money in bank, things like that. And I'll tell you right now, so many of them have issues with land. I mean, it's like every person <laughs> I talk to, it's like, oh, I'm dealing with this issue because my dad can't handle it and I'm getting involved. I mean, so many people have <laughs> mentioned that to me. And it really, um, it, it makes me, fr- it gets me frustrated because I wish there was more of a structure. And 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 again, and, and one thing Faisby told me, and you kind of you know reiterated is, and there are individuals that are really trying to implement structure uh, where maybe the government's not doing that, right? So what are your thoughts on that? Without getting political, I'm not political. I'm sure you're not. Like, what, what do you think some of the things that the government is doing or trying to do or should be doing um, to kind of implement that sort of structure where people are more comfortable investing from the outside? Yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a tough kind of answer, I mean, situation, right? Because, I mean, those are things that are generational. Right. And yeah. so you don't automatically, you know, make a few moves or enact a couple of policies and say, okay, well, you know, Bangladesh is open for investment. That's, mm-hmm. uh, that's one piece. Right. And then uh, a key challenge is obviously capital flows. Right? You have to, you know, Bangladesh is quite strict about its capital flow, flows for different reasons, um, including the fact that it's an, it's an export oriented economy who's, you know, where the manufacturers um, are quite powerful, obviously, uh, within the apparatus of the government. And, and they need certain clarity when it comes to, and, and stability when it comes to exchange rates, all those kinds of things, right? So those are, I mean, there's some reforms that are quite generational. And so that's why I think a lot of startups have taken that sort of onus on themselves to say, look, we're not going to wait, right? We're going to go to Singapore. You know, we're going to go to New York uh, and we're going to, you know, operate according to international mm. standards and global best practices yeah. while we wait for Bangladesh to catch up, right? Yeah. I think, and, and I mean, I think that's a very pragmatic move on their part. I think where I give the government a lot of credit, I, I think, you know, when I, I, when people ask us, like, why do you exist? Or, I mean, this is also a question we ask the startups, like, why now, right? I think, you know, there has been an ecosystem that's developed based around startups in the last five, six, seven years. And I think one of the pillars is the government support, right? So the government's trying to support in, in different ways. So one is they're trying to create infrastructure, right? So they're, you know, creating, for example, software technology parks around the country, um, offering mm-hmm low-cost real estate to startups to be able to kind of, you know, hopefully take some of their operations. You know, when, when it comes to kind of um, the government and, and policies and everything else, you know, I, I always talk about, you know, that's, that's been a big enabler for us, right? And I think it would be very hard for us to operate at this time has it, have, had it not been for government support. And the specifics I'll, I'll say around that is that over the last six or seven years, you know, in, the startup ecosystem has literally kind of grown up, right, from scratch. Like, you know, we talk about almost zero to where it is these days. Um, and, and a big part of that has been what the government is doing when it comes to, for example, infrastructure, right? So offer, um, trying to create a network of software technology parks um, around the country, offering low-cost um, space um, and even access to things like data centers for startups. Uh, so that's one example. Um, another is liquidity, right? So for example, uh, two years ago, um, if you had if you had wanted to kind of start a venture capital fund that's locally domiciled with local money, you actually couldn't do that um, in in the way that you know you and I might know of or that exists in other countries, right? Uh, you could have holding companies, but you couldn't have you know proper kind of private equity or venture capital funds. 
And so mm-hmm. they created a, a structure, and, and I think Fiesfight and others have been quite you know instrumental in lobbying for this, uh, and many others. But um, you know, whereby you can do that, and and you know, sixteen institutions I think have taken the license to do so, and wow. a few of them were supposed. I think one, at least one company has launched. Uh, right, one, one you know organization has launched their you know first VC fund, but many others will hopefully follow suit in the future. Um, and that's interesting because uh, that helps create a local market for domestic uh, local domestic market for venture capital, right, and, and private equity. So that's that's another one. Um, another uh, element is yeah, this will be important in the future, uh, particularly for you know exits. Uh, the fact that the Dhaka Stock Exchange is trying to create a a platform for smaller companies that are much younger, not that profitable, without much in the way of assets or paid up capital, i.e. startups, to be able to get listed and offload shares earlier in their kind of journey. And so, you know, quote unquote angels and earlier stage investors can get an exit sooner rather than later, at least on the on the local markets. So that's something that's in the works. It was supposed to also happen this year, but that's been delayed. But so those are and then, you know, also like tax holidays, right? So if you're an IT enabled services company and you register with basis, you know, you're, you get tax holidays um, going into, I, f- I forgot exactly the way these days, but you don't have to pay income tax, right? So, okay. I mean, I'll, I'll give you other examples. Like even during COVID, uh, one of the key things that happened was Bangladesh Bank put out a circular where locally owned subsidiaries of foreign companies, and many startups are structured that way, right? So they might have a foreign registration, but then they have a local operating subsidiary. So they can, you know, take money from the parent company. As shareholder loans mm. and then repatriate it, right? Um, I think right now it's just for working capital purposes um, because there's a lot of COVID-induced kind of lack of liquidity in the market. But but that's a great start, right? Um, even uh, I'm working, you know, fintech has been a sector that's been perpetually challenging for me because every time a company tries to get started, they they fail to get off the ground because of the regulations and just trying to decipher that, etc. But then, you know, one of the companies we're working with now, I'll hopefully get to mention to you when that comes pub- becomes public, you know, they've, they've been working hand in hand with, um, you know, the, the regulators from the beginning. You know, they've been quite encouraging to say, hey, get started, get to a certain level, approve your model, and then we can figure out regulations and policies, right? So, so I think, I mean, things are changing. I'm just giving you very small snippets and maybe some small anecdotes here and there, but um, they're, they're changing and they're changing faster than even I thought. Um, and so there's kind of hope for optimism. But obviously, there's a long way to go too, right? So one of the biggest challenges for startups is that you need very flexible forms of financing. So one of the challenges I face all the time and sometimes where I lose deals is that you know, you, we kind of go back and forth on valuations and a lot of founders may not like the valuations that they get, um, at least uh, from us or at the stage that they're in. Uh, but you know, in the US, a lot of founders don't have to, or founders don't have to deal with that as much, right? Because you've got um, instruments like convertible notes Convertible, uh, convertible notes, uh, safe notes, you know, simple agreement for future equity, where you're essentially saying, we're going to kick the can down the road, right? We're going to figure out the valuation at a later stage when, you know, presumably more sophisticated investors will come in and they'll determine the right price based on the experience that they've had and they have ex- uh, across their portfolio, what have you. But you can't really do that. Like, you can't do those types of instruments in Bangladesh, right? But that's very common um, in, uh, in other parts of the world. So, I mean, we have a long way to, I mean, even when it comes to, you know, in, in, inducing exit opportunities, uh, making sure, you know, there's clarity around how you can kind of return capital back to investors. I mean, those are all things I think over time, you know, would have to be clarified. Um, and so it's, it's sort of, you know, I, I, I see both sides of that, right? I see positive things that the government is doing, but um, definitely there's a lot more that can be done. Yeah, and I'm not trying to sh- uh, shit on Bangladesh at all. I think there's 
you know, it's so much potential. I mean, listen, just the entrepreneurship in Bangladesh is just astrono- astronomical. I remember when I went in 2014, uh, that was the last time I went. I remember that I went downstairs and I was pick up, picking up laundry. And the woman downstairs, not only did she, and obviously this is not the scale of entrepreneurs that you're dealing with, but just like just to, the entrepreneurship in Bangladesh, the, the, the woman was also selling SIM cards. She was also like doing like, three other businesses right from this little corner shop. And I was just like, I was just amazed. Even my cousins, I have some cousins that are not wealthy at all, but they're like hustling, like selling stuff. One of my cousins sells birds. They they have birds and she like, you know, she, they have birds, that have babies and she sells the baby birds. And I'm just like, I just love it. Like I love the hustle and you see that here, but I'm seeing it more and more in Bangladesh. I also see, and we have some mutual friends that have done this is that they, I know people that are like me, that are going back to Bangladesh and starting companies. Like, talk about that, because I'm sure you see more, you see that more than I do. Well, they've been sort of the vanguards, right? So if you look yeah. at, so there's been around $300 million plus invested in startups in Bangladesh over the last, you know, seven years or so. And I think pretty much almost all of them have kind of an NRB connection, right? Um, when it comes to, let's say, you know, either like some people similar to maybe myself or yourself, where maybe they've grown up, or spent considerable time abroad and, and then have come back. Uh, maybe they studied abroad uh, and and worked and then come back. Uh, what have you? And I think I think that makes a lot of sense, right? So one, I mean, you you gain important managerial skills. You also get um, you also develop that pedigree that I think you know that would um, institutional investors more comfortable to invest in you, right? Uh, and and obviously also you know being uh, exposed to different types of models and. Um, and, and things I, I think also is quite beneficial, right? Um, I, I think for us as, as Bangladesh Angels, like, uh, you know, we, we need those founders for sure. Uh, and many of them are part of us. And that's quite important. I, th- I think it's also, you know, how do we take the, the founder who, you know, grew up in Bangladesh, maybe Nuttura or Mamatpur, yeah. you know, maybe went to North South University, right? Which Rahat, you know, our mutual friend and, you know, he and I are working together on an accelerator there. Um, and then and then started a company, or maybe he worked at a couple places, including startups, maybe run by these NRBs, and then you know they've started a company. Like that's the archetype of the of the founder that we want to promote, right? Um, is yeah. or, or we want to help expand the opportunities with such founders too, right? Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, yeah. Again, super impressed with what's going on. I also obviously I spoke to Faizbhai, you know, who's involved in a number of uh, who you know um, startups there and. Everything he tells me, I'm just, my my goal was actually this year to spend significant time in Bangladesh. And if it wasn't for COVID, I would have done that. Uh, But hopefully next year, uh, I'll be able to do that. Anytime, anytime. I think you'll you'll find a lot of changes since 2004. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Every time I go back, it's, uh, when's the last time you went? I I live there, so okay. I think I'm just I'm just here in the U.S. during COVID uh, with family. Okay. But yeah, I, I live there normally. So all of your family is in Dallas? Yeah, yeah. Is there a large Bangladeshi population in, in where you are? There is. Um, I think, I mean, Houston's probably a bigger community, but Dallas also has a pretty large contingent uh, of, you know, like my father is an academic and so he works at Texas. He used to work at Texas University, but mm. um, but there's also like, I mean, TI is a big employer, right? A Buet grads, uh, Texas Instruments, right? So So that there's a whole community around that. There's a whole kind of, um, you know, I mean, there's, you know, there's also people who kind of graduate from universities in the area. Uh, but yeah, definitely a big community. You know TK, right? TK Kader, he lives in Dallas, right? Yeah, I, you know, I need to connect with him. So maybe this I'll is a way for me to shout him out. <laughs> this well, is a way connect, to shout uh, 
Well, uh, I'll connect. He was on the podcast. He's a good guy. I'll connect you. Uh, he's a really good guy. Um, and he's been a big supporter of Boney from the beginning. So I'll, uh, yeah, awesome. I'll, I'll connect That's you. Awesome. Um, what I wanted to talk about, I asked a lot of business people this is like, so in Bangladesh, you know, this, the idea of like Bapsha, I always felt like had a sort of like a negative connotation in Bangladesh. And I, somebody else I had on the podcast, I think last week noted that the reason like t- t- usually like if you go into business in Bangladesh, maybe it's changed now, but for a long time, if you're going into business, you were, you know, it was, it was because you were uneducated or, um, you know, you didn't, you didn't have the family connects to get like a, a good job or a government job. So, you know, it sort of, sort of had a negative connotation. Like BEPSHA, even if you say BEPSHA, it has like a negative connotation. Do you think that's changed? Yeah. It's interesting. Like, I guess the story I would use, um, so when I first came back and I just kind of ended up befriending this, um, you know, owner of a garment, fa- a garments factory, not that like, you know, it's a medium sized one in Gajipur where I was born. And so I visited him one time and we were just kind of discussing and yeah, he was just talk- telling about the story of, um, you know, he's probably in his sixties. Um, but he was telling about the story of when he was much earlier, younger, obviously, you know, he started out working for a, you know, a buying house and then he got the opportunity bosses believed in them they became shareholders etc in his company but when it was starting you know he was looking to get married um and the the parents of the woman that he wanted to get married to basically said come on you know garments this is the 80s by the way like the late 80s <laughs> yeah. like well, come on yeah. like garments has no future yeah. this, you know so why <laughs> yeah. don't you why don't you marry this doctor instead and which is what happened <laughs> yeah. and then and then and then he you know they went off their separate ways but then now they're became a billionaire <laughs> That's right, but then, then, but then he became, you know, relatively wealthy. I, I would say yeah. he's not done for himself, yeah, yeah, yeah. and then, and so, the, but then they still stay have stayed in touch, and now they're family friends, etc. Which is all quite interesting and maybe very magnanimous and, and generous of yeah, them yeah. to do as well. But um, I, I think like that's the way I view like, um, and I, th- I know you had another sort of question about startup founders and whether or not that's accepted, right? I, it's still tough. I, I fully yeah. appreciate how tough it is to, uh, particularly once again, like that archetype that I've talked about, you know, someone who, you know, maybe didn't have the, the opportunity to maybe study abroad, doesn't, you know, where, you know, his, or maybe his family has had a lot of expectation on him or her kind of going through doing the right things, right. Studying, um, when then maybe going into, yeah, the traditional sectors of engineering or medicine, but then also things like even MNCs, right. Because those are multinational companies, right. Like going that route. Going the, I guess the legit, so legitimate route, but instead kind of throwing that away out and and saying, look, I'm going to start a company. Like when, when there hasn't, there's more and more examples, and and we'll have more and more. But um, where where you had to have, where there's still not enough, I guess, examples of people who've done that and done well for themselves, right? Um, and so so it's it's a challenge for sure. Um, and and it's something I deal with all the time um, when I come across founders and 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 the pressures they face. You know, it's easy enough for an angel investor to say, "Oh, why don't you raise money from friends and family?" Right? But I, I but then that that element is there, right? Maybe the family doesn't approve of what you're doing, or they don't support what you're doing, right? Um, even if you're even if you if you're lucky enough to come from a business family, maybe your family doesn't want you to do a startup. Yeah. Maybe they want you to come and join the the family business and and run that, right? So, yeah, there's so many dynamics like that. Absolutely. I just wrote an article about social capital, and that was the means in which. Many Bengalis came to the U.S. and built successful businesses. 
um, small businesses, but still some successful businesses. Um, and I talked about how that's something that's lacking within the second and third generation Bengalis is that we don't have that social capital that we can tap into to start businesses. That's why a lot of, you know, a lot of people just go into like, you know, stable, you know, good jobs. I mean, fr- frankly, me, um, people like me, like I didn't really have, um, you know, this push from my parents or even I didn't have that social capital to kind of start my own business. Um, so I'm starting a little late, but you know, it's, uh, it's, it's, it's getting there, but listen i feel like we can talk forever uh, there's so much going on i want to i want to ask you so many more questions maybe we'll do a part two we can always do that absolutely it'd be my pleasure yeah i'm i'm super excited i'm super excited to first i was really excited to know that you know this sort of network exists um and i'm excited to meet you and um yeah i'm excited to see what's you know what happens with your network and in bangladesh i'm you know obviously the, the bata was in the news a lot for the unfortunate reasons I'm hoping to see more uh, you know, Bengali startups and founders in the news for you know a lot more like positive reasons. Like, uh, and I'm sure you know you're helping to do that. I, I think it's. I mean, it's already happening to an extent, and I think it's only a matter of time before you know those news uh, reaches these shores um, as yeah. well. And, and so, it just you know, we, we just have to keep working at it. I think it's that's what it is. You know, it's it's a pretty long. It's a long term game. Absolutely great. Uh, great talking to you, and uh, hope to have you back soon. Awesome. Thank you so much. Had the red and green eye